Okay, so before we begin our study time, you guys have probably gotten used to me doing this. This is our fourth week of Advent that begins this morning. And so I wanted to do one last reading for us and focus for us before we get to Christmas. Um, the final week of Advent, it focuses on incarnation. So we talked about waiting mystery. Last week was redemption. And then this week is incarnation, God in human flesh. And so with the concept of the incarnation on our minds, um, my prayers at the following that I'm going to read to you is part of the final touches on our hearts at the end or, and like as we, as we enter Christmas week. And it's funny for me because a lot of times, you know, like you, you, you'll clean your house up. You'll kind of get yourself prepared for certain events. Maybe you're cleaning, getting your house ready to have a bunch of guests come over this week. Maybe you're the host or, or what have you. But a lot of times you run around, do that quick check. I kind of want us to do a quick check on our heart. Let's do this quick check on our heart and make sure that we're ready for what we're going to experience this week and to not see it as something, well, this happens every year. I don't want this year to be like every other year. And I think we're really well conditioned by now to not see it that way. I think we're in the perfect place to not see this as any other year or the, the same old, same old. We're already out of our comfort zone. Instead of run from it, let's embrace it. Okay, let's hug it close to us like it's our friend. And I want to share the following quote with you. It's really short from a sermon entitled The Government Upon the Shoulders of a Child. It was given in Christmas of 1940. This is about the birth of a child, not of the astonishing work of a strong man, not of the bold discovery of a wise man, not of the pious work of a saint. It really is beyond all understanding. The birth of a child shall bring about the great change and shall bring to all mankind salvation and deliverance. Then from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being is in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Lord, as we hear those words and as we think of God in the manger, Jesus, you in an animal feeding trough, as we condition our hearts and make these final touches going into, Lord, this last week before Christmas, Lord, I pray that we would embrace the uncomfortable weariness, the out of sorts of this year. Lord, I ask that we would embrace it because there was no stranger out of the ordinary circumstance than the King of Kings to be born into a manger. Lord, you were born into such circumstances. You invaded this earth in that way. As a child, the thing that the nations would least expect to see the King of Kings come humbly. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see that as we're in this season of oddity, Lord, that you can do great things, that you can do powerful, life-altering things here. And so, Lord, we celebrate Advent. Jesus, not just that you came, which we celebrate fully, but that we are waiting and ready for your next coming. We are ready for you to return. Even so, as we pray these words, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this time. Focus us on your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Daniel chapter 9. If you would turn there with me. We're going to complete this chapter this morning. 
And as you turn to Daniel chapter 9, this is the final third part of our series in this chapter. We spent two weeks talking about the prayer of Daniel, and then this week we're going to look at the prophecy that was given to Daniel here at the end, and and many of you will be familiar with the prophecy of Daniel 9. This is for uh, Bible students and for uh, believers. This is a very um, sought-after and well-studied passage. And as we consider this, um, as we're completing this chapter this week, Um, I want to read the following to you from Psalm 145, verses 17 through 18. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. We can act as together, tough, peaceful, happy, or satisfied as we can possibly be. And most of us are putting on that face right now. We just got to be honest about it. Most of us are putting on our together face right now. You know, if you weren't very together, it's, you can kind of see in people's eyes and you're like, I'm not trying to hide anything. I was like, yeah, but we have like a public presentation mode. You don't look like you're sitting in your chair at home right now, which is okay. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm just like, well, next week. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but, but what I want to call this, call our attention to is we all share this common need inside of us. And yes, if I said that, I was like, Hey, we all have this common need inside of us. If I said that to a youth group, what would I get? Jesus. They all, they just all yell it. Whenever you say that the answer to everything is Jesus, right? Okay. You're not wrong, but let me go a little bit more. Let me go a level deeper here and not just answer that, you know, altruistically, although Jesus is the answer. We have an emotional need. We have an emotional need within us. Yes, guys, you have it too. It's true. You, we all have it. And we have this emotional need to know and be known. To know someone and to be known by that person. Now, you have seen pictures of this relationally in your lives. Like for husbands and wives, this is part of our the power of the marriage relationship is to know someone and to be known by them for good or bad. Right? All the good stuff, which is what you thought about before you got married, and all the bad stuff that you think about after you get married. And so, you, you, you know, that doesn't, that's not how it works for you guys. That's crazy. Um, but what's interesting, you guys, is that we have this desire to know and be known, and the ultimate emotional connection that we all need and can only have with one person is not necessarily with your spouse, although I'm not diminishing that role. What I'm saying is this, there is a deep emotional need for God inside of us to be known by him and to know him. That is the ultimate fruition of our existence is to be known by God and to know him. This open relationship, this intimate relationship with God is what we all desperately need. Physical relationships on this earth give us a small taste of it, but it really is just a taste. It's, it's not the full flavor. It's not the full flavor. Physical human relationships can only, can only fit this so much as an example of the deeper more powerful spiritual connection that God longs to have with all of us. And we discovered that the way we experience this is through prayer. The way we experience this is through prayer. And the reason I say that is because of what we see in Daniel's life and what we see here in this psalm that I just read to you, that in Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. If you want the nearness of God, you are near to him in prayer. 
His word is truth. We should be in his word. But are we emotionally and mentally and spiritually connected to God in prayer? And I'll add physically to that as well, because it's a physical thing that we do. We separate ourselves from the rest of the things that we're doing and we pray to God. And you're like, I pray while I'm driving in the car. That's, that's good and dangerous for me, but that's good. But do you take time to where all that you do is cry out to God? All that you're doing is spending time in prayer with him because there's an emotional connection there between you and the Lord that is essential. And that's not just for the ladies, guys. Trust me, if you start spending more time in, pr- in prayer and getting in touch with that emotional side of you with the Lord, your wife will benefit greatly. Guys, we need to have this connection to the Lord. Daniel had it. Daniel had this powerful connection to the Lord. We're going to see this more in our passages. We continue forward. But I've often been inspired by the closeness of Daniel to God, the strength, revelation, encouragement, love, and compassion that all flow from God to Daniel throughout this book. And we see it clearly where it begins with Daniel. We've seen it in the last two weeks, and I, I, I hope that you're connecting this with me. The last two weeks, all we've been focusing on is Daniel's prayer. The prayer of Daniel to God crying out to him. Now, the following revelation that we're going to read this morning comes as Daniel is prayed for the first 19 verses of this chapter. And it's funny how oftentimes we'll focus on really verses like 23 through 27. But there's 22 verses prior. And that's why we spent so much time in that, because that prayer conditioned Daniel to be able to handle what God was going to reveal to him. And it gave him that connection to the Lord. And we'll see some of that come out here at the beginning of our passage prior to the revelation itself as we still have a couple verses left to go in Daniel's interaction with an angel named Gabriel. I think we would do well to remember what took place prior to the revelation that God is going to show Daniel at the end of this chapter. Prior to the revelation he receives, he was in a time of confession and repentance. Church, if you want the Lord to speak to you and to have an open line, Begin with confession and repentance. Begin with brokenness over your sin. Humility before God. And then receive what he has to show you. Oh, you may not see what Daniel saw. I mean, if Gabriel shows up, that's cool. But he's probably just going to give you some instruction and some encouragement for your life. He's probably going to give you some really practical things you can do. Do you ever stand there on the edge of the road and be like, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to go. I have no idea where to go from here. The road ends here. There's no, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. How much time have you spent in prayer? How much time have you spent confessing, repenting, crying out to God to fill you, and then is there still silence? Some people are like, yeah. How long did you spend? Three minutes. Spend some extensive time with the Lord. Okay, so let's talk about prayer exhaustion. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Daniel says, while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. We don't know how long Daniel had been praying, but he says that Gabriel reached him at about three in the afternoon. The time of the evening offering, the evening burnt offering um, that would have been made in Jerusalem. It's funny how even though Daniel's body is in Babylon, he's still operating on Jerusalem time, so to speak. He's still operating on that. Well, he came to me at the time of the evening oblation or the evening offering, the burnt offering for the Lord, right? 
By the way, there's some interesting connections there. We don't have time this morning, but you could actually teach a sermon off that one section. I'm talking about that's when the lamb would have been slain, and that's when people prayed at the end of the day. There's a really cool connection there. You're like, ooh, let's hear that. Sorry, no time. Even though Daniel is in Babylon, his heart and his mind are still in Jerusalem. They're still on the Lord's temple, still on his homeland. And as he's confessing his own sin, as we've been reading over the last couple of weeks and the sins of the nation, as he's standing with them, Gabriel, the angel arrives. Now he's a spirit, but he takes on the form of a man. He says, the man Gabriel arrives and he appears to me, second appearance in the last two chapters. And notice the state that he finds Daniel in. This is fascinating to me. What does it say there? Do you see it? Here as he arrives, he says, while I was praying, Gabriel, verse 21, the man I had seen in the first vision reached me in my complete peacefulness and relaxation. What kind of a state is he in? Extreme weariness. Is your prayer time taxing? Does it drain you? One of my favorite Bible teachers said that after he would prepare a sermon, oftentimes he feels like he has this blessed fatigue. Like he's just worn out. And I was like, blessed fatigue. I've never been fatigued and be like, this is fantastic. I mean, maybe sometimes like when you get done with like a good day and it's, you know, you've worked hard and the, and the task is done, you can be like, okay, I feel pretty, pretty good about this. But a blessed fatigue, he's extremely weary because he is pouring out his guts to God. I hope you've experienced this. I hope you've experienced this and I hope you experience it more because it softens us to hear from him. It humbles us. Just because we're closely connected to God doesn't mean that we will always be fresh and chipper, rejoicing and peaceful. You know, have you ever talked to somebody about your relationship with God and be like, I'm just in turmoil. And they're like, well, you need to spend some time with the Lord because you'll find peace. You're like, uh, actually, I spent time with the Lord and I'm completely wrecked. Maybe that's what God wants. Maybe God wants to wreck us down to the ground so that we are humble, so that we are lowly, so that we can be emptied. Think about this. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. Now, I'm just going to give you some examples from here in Daniel. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. That doesn't sound like fun. Daniel seven twenty-eight. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel four nineteen. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment and his thoughts alarmed him. On and on and on it goes throughout the book of Daniel. Daniel keeps coming to this place where what he's seeing, or what he's experiencing, or what's coming out of him is just bleh. Church, we are in a season of bleh. We are. We're in a season where things just aren't going right. And it doesn't feel good. And you may not be comfortable. And you may not like it. And it's exactly where God wants you. It's exactly where he has us. He's wrecking us to the ground. Why? So that he can reveal to us what he is about to do. So that he can do something through us that will draw glory to God and not to us. Because if we are humble and wrecked and just like, oh, I'm just a worm. Great. Now I can use you. Right? Now I can be glorified through you. That's what God wants to do. Oftentimes God intends to empty so that he can empower and fill. He empties us first. We used to sing that song often. We haven't sung it for a while. Holy fire. It's like empty me. I had someone come up to me once after a a church service and be like, don't ever play that song again. It's heretical. I was like, it's heretical. And they're like, yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't want like less of yourself. You shouldn't like want to be emptied. You should actually be able to process. I was like, I think you misunderstand. 
what we just sang. So I kind of walked them through the song. It's like, it's about being emptied of your flesh. It's about being emptied of your sin and being filled with the power of God. And that's what I want. They're like, yeah, but. I'm like, no, 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 yeah, buts. I want less of me and more of him. That's exactly what I want. I want as much of him in me as possible. Verse 22 continues. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. That's a good message. Here in his extreme weariness, Gabriel says, I'm, I'm here to give you understanding. Verse 23, at the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out. I've come to give it for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Daniel will be told twice more in chapter 10 that he's treasured by God. Twice more in chapter 10. Here, so in three, in three times he'll be told he's treasured within a two-chapter period. And we expect people to know things that we said before, but oftentimes we take it for granted, don't we? I mean, guys, does your wife ever look at you and go, do you love me? Don't answer with, you know I do. Yes, I love you, dearest. I treasure you. I adore you. You guys think about this. How often do we need to hear something that we already know? If we were to stop and be asked a question, if we were to stop and be asked a question about something that we already, that we already know the answer to, we sometimes need that affirmation. We need that affirmation. We need to hear it. That's not how God does it to just leave us there with, well, I told you once, how many times do you need to hear it? I told you I loved you like way back in that one chapter, you know, John three sixteen. just sit there for a while and remember that I loved you. Why do you want to hear it again? God doesn't say that. That's not how God works. How many passages come to mind in the New Testament alone where the writers are inspired by the Holy Spirit, declaring the love of God that he's proven for us through Christ over and over and over again. We need to be affirmed in this way. And as a social experiment, without warning, at some point today, I want you to tell somebody close to you that you treasure them. I really do. Please don't forget. I'm not going to make you do it in the room. It's inauthentic. You know, like, now turn to your neighbor. <laughs> and the young guy who's been checking out that one girl is like, finally, this is my moment. <laughs> I treasure you. No, but I, I want to give you guys this, this, do this as a social experiment. Mean it. Don't walk up to him and be like, I treasure you. Ah! you know, none of that garbo. Walk up to somebody in your home that you love and say, I absolutely treasure you. You're special to me. Even if they act stupid, like shut up, it'll mean something inside. It'll mean something inside because it encourages us to hear this. And God says through Gabriel to Daniel, I treasure you. You're treasured to me. I care about you, Daniel, here in exile, in a place that's not your home, in this, this situation of struggle as you're crying out, as you're in your 80s and you've been in exile since a teenager. I treasure you. That matters. The mission of Gabriel here as he continues on is to provide clarity to things Daniel doesn't understand regarding the future of his people. So let's get into the prophecy side of it. Verse 24, Gabriel brings a message. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. This is an insane list. That is a lot, especially to hear as a old man who's been in exile the majority of his life in Babylon. 
this vision contains much. Now, depending on your translation, 70 weeks may be translated 77s, which is easy for, easier for us to process. It gives more clarity to what's being talked about here. 70 weeks is well agreed upon by scholars to be 70 sets of seven years. And we know this from biblical translation. We know this from the language that's been used. The Hebrew word used for weeks here is often, most often used for a set of seven days. However, we have examples throughout scripture as well where it's used for a set of seven years. In fact, in Genesis 29, there's a perfect example where the Hebrew word shalbua is used both in the seven days and seven years context. In Genesis 29, it's used in the same chapter. And so we know this is something that Hebrew can do often. It gives us understanding to know that we're talking about a set of years and not just a literal seven-day week. And this prophecy is given to Daniel to clarify something about his people and his city. Notice how specific Gabriel says that. Your people, your holy city. This prophecy is focused on Israel. It's focused on Israel. The context does not change. He's staying very literal or, if you will, plain. It's plain, literal text. Okay, and so some people will get very confused in this section and start to spiritualize. They'll start to spiritualize things or say, well, this is just a picture of something. It's a metaphor. He has stayed in the plain literal and he will remain in the plain literal. It gives a lot of help for us when we're going forward reading prophecy to know, are we talking about something that is symbolic or are we talking about something that is the literal thing that is going to happen? We are in plain literal right now. So it's important to keep that in mind in the context of the text itself. Now, these sets of seven have a purpose for the nation of Israel, and that's where Gabriel starts. He doesn't start by breaking them down. He'll do that in a moment. What he starts with is, here's what these 70 weeks or these 77s pertain to. They're to do the following, to bring the rebellion to an end. Who are the ones who have rebelled? Mankind, the rule of men will be removed and God is going to establish a new order, not a new world order, his order, right? The one we want. So rebellion will come to an end. He's going to do what? Put a stop to sin. He's going to put a stop to sin. I don't know about you guys, but I am ready for sin to stop in me and everywhere around me. I am done with the sin problem. Can we agree on that? Can I get an amen? I'm sick of sin. Yep, I'm done with it. He's going to put a stop to sin. His will will be done here on earth. God establishes his own kingdom and his will will be done in his kingdom. He's going to atone for iniquity. All right, former youth group kids. The guilt of sin upon human beings must be paid for. How's God going to accomplish this? Jesus, right? oh, sorry, I was going for that, that here, right? on the cross, Jesus, Jesus is going to accomplish it. You guys, really, I was expecting like a big, powerful Jesus, because I talked about that earlier. It's okay. Even my youth kids are like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Jesus is going to accomplish this. Do you realize that talking about the atoning for, the atonement, atoning for iniquity, he is here in Daniel, in Babylon, pointing to Jesus. Oh, it gets better. It gets way better in a minute. To bring in everlasting righteousness, the culmination of the work of Christ will be his established rule and removal of sin so completely that righteousness will be everlasting. To seal up 
the next thing that this is going to accomplish, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place contained within the 77s is completion of vision and prophecy and God's final cleansing. All of these things accomplished. Now think about this. We're presented with a a challenge at this point. As we read all that this contains, okay, as the church here in our current time, as we're reading Daniel, we're like, how much have we seen of this have we seen done already? We can check some, but not, not the majority here. Think about this. We can take what we're seeing literally or we can spiritualize it. When we're talking about the atonement of sin, When we're talking about the serious issues that are presented here, if this is not literal, we have a very big problem. We have a very considerable problem if this is not literal, plain text. I'm just building my case. I'm just saying I think that we take this literally because it's speaking literally to us. Given the parameters and context, I believe we can take it that way and grasp the details provided as either performed or yet to be performed. So we can look at it in the literal sense and say this has either happened or is going to happen. God is making a declaration. Now, with the plain literal approach, we know something right off the bat. We haven't seen this all done yet, but let's take a look at the prophecy and identify what we have seen happen thus far. Because all those, that was like the outline. Here's all the things that this pertains to. And he goes, let's break it down a little bit for you. Look at verse 25. Know and understand this. This is a powerful prophecy, you guys. This was made So far ahead, over 400 years before, know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. For Daniel, most likely confusing. For us, revealing. For us, confirmation affirmation. The message of the 70 weeks will begin with the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. I'm not going to go crazy, but allow me just, let me go a little crazy. That may seem like an easy starting point to find in history, but there are four events that people like to base this time frame off of. Let me give them to you and show you why I've chosen one of the four. Okay. I'm not going to do this in every case, but this is fun. Okay. Remember I told you guys throughout Daniel, I do the preaching and sometimes I switch to the teaching mode. This is teaching mode. Click. Four events in time that could be considered for the starting point. Cyrus made a decree giving Ezra and the Babylonian captives the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in 538. You can read about it in Ezra 1 and Ezra 5. Okay, that's a possibility. Not a good one. Second situation. Darius made a decree giving Ezra the right to rebuild the temple in 517. Ezra chapter 6. Possibility also unlikely because of the time frame. Also notice... Temple, temple. First two are commands to rebuild the temple, correct? Okay. Artaxerxes made a decree giving Ezra permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in 458. They were having some trouble. Now we're in 458 BC, and yet again, what is he going to do? Temple, right? To work on the temple. Ezra 7. Fourth option. I saved the best for last. Shocking, isn't it? You're like, this feels like a setup. It is. Artaxerxes made a decree giving Nehemiah permission, safe passage and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls in 445. 
You can read about that in Nehemiah 2. Now you'll notice that out of these four, only one is a command to rebuild the city and the walls. And that's to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2. You're like, great, Mike. Why does that matter? I'm so glad you asked. If we consider that more carefully and look at the numbers that Gabriel gives us, 69 sets of seven years is, carry the one, 483 years. No, I didn't do that in my head. I'm not that good. The issuing of the decree from Artaxerxes came in 445 BC. We should see then, when we look forward from that point, 483 years later, the Messiah. For us looking backwards, this is a matter of doing math and counting for the Jewish calendar as compared to ours. They used a 360-day, 12-month calendar. Notice that it's not 365. So every so often, they would add a 13th month to one of their years. You're like, well, if we should just be able to plug those numbers in. No, it doesn't work that simply. It doesn't work that simply. Now, there are a handful of suggestions that have been made. All connect this prophecy to Jesus at different points of his life. But most of them do not triangulate a precise day. Most. Most of them don't. Now, some have tried to connect this set of numbers from this date to Jesus being crucified or Jesus um, at the beginning of his life and all these different time periods, and they try to make cases around. I'm not saying, there's something Jay Warner Wallace says that's really great. He says, I'm not saying it's impossible, it's just not probable. It's not impossible. It is possible, but it's not probable. You look at all the factors in play, and you take the strongest case supported by the most evidence. What's fascinating is a man named Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book. And inside the book, he used a 360-day calendar, or 360-day year, and calculated 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes, which landed you on Palm Sunday. It landed you on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, what's fascinating about that to me is that you can actually do the numbers and find your way there. It is doable by the math. But did you think about why that would be significant? That the anointed one and the ruler entering the city, Jerusalem, from Daniel's perspective, what that would mean. What that would mean to him, meaning that this is the one day that this person will receive glory and honor as the Messiah and enter the city. Do you know what's unique about Jesus's incarnation, about his existence here on earth? That was the only day that he openly received worship as Messiah the King. Fascinating stuff, you guys. It's a powerful testament to the precision of God viewable throughout Scripture. And we know that this prophecy in Daniel was written over 400 years before Jesus came. And they say it's impressive that Babe Ruth might have called his shot. That's calling your shot with pinpoint accuracy, as only God can do. Now, there's another side of this that's really cool. Something else to consider is if we can hold the triumphal entry as the moment spoken of in Daniel 9.25, there's a couple other factors to consider. It should be mentioned, of course, and I already have, that um, this is the one time that Jesus received worship. It's also interesting to think about that in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, Jesus planned this entry with precision himself. It wasn't accidental. He planned to enter that day. Why? Why? Because his father told him to. 
because it was the plan all along. This was the plan of God. This was God's deal. And the crowds welcomed him with praise. Luke 19, verses 38 through 40. It says here, as you continue with the text, by the way, that's so cool. I love talking about this stuff. I look, I love looking at biblical prophecy and seeing God nail these things down so precisely. Do your own research on that, by the way. There's some fascinating things to read on it. Um, I put in more reading time into that than I should, but it was really fun. I was having a good time with it. So, It'll be rebuilt, it says, with a plaza and a moat, speaking of the temple uh, or the city. Um, speaking of the city, will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. Now, it's interesting because this, we, we kind of look at this. Why did he say 62 and 7? Why didn't he just say 69 weeks until Messiah? He says 62 and 7. It's interesting. This could indicate why we have 62 and 7 separated. The rebuilding of Jerusalem would happen in the first set of seven years, and then 62 more sets would happen after that, which would take you on. You have the whole number of how far it was from the command, but you also have the set of seven years that it took to actually rebuild in difficult times. And so it actually, if you combine the two, it makes a lot of sense. But he's separating this really into three separate periods. We're talking about the set of seven years to rebuild, the set of 62 to get you to the anointed one, but we're short one. I don't know if you guys noticed, we're at 69 weeks here. So we've seen 69 weeks happen, but we're short. And for those of you who are into this chapter, you're like, yeah, 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 just get on with it. Okay. I'll stop dragging it out. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, we can easily understand the prophetic message of the Messiah given in verse 26, I believe. Jesus, our Messiah, directly, uh, after being declared the Savior, was put to death. Was being put, he was put to death within the week. Now what's fascinating about that, cut off quite literally, not at all was Jesus the political ruler the people were looking for at that time, but rather the lamb slaughtered for the sins of the world. Who were they going to look for next time? Who were they looking for? The political leader. They're looking for, don't, we're getting to verse 27. Just a second, just a second. But just think about the contrast here. Jesus came to die on the cross and they wanted him to kick Rome out. You realize that they still are looking for the one who will come and lead them politically. And that doesn't mean that they're going to look to someone good at first. It doesn't mean that they're going to accept and make an agreement with someone who is good first. They're not going to do this with God. They want what they want, which means they're willing to make a deal with the devil almost quite literally. Almost quite literally. Now, following the death of Jesus, we can see this here in the prophecy as well. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. It was laid waste to. It was destroyed, and the people of the coming ruler, it says, will do this. Now, this may seem confusing because we're going to talk. I'm just going to give it away. We're going to talk about the Antichrist in chapter 20 or verse 27 here. And if you're thinking about the, the ones of the coming ruler, you're like, well, this is Rome, and we are way beyond Rome now. You know, like since the, the destruction of Jerusalem, we're talking almost 2,000 years now. Not quite, but it's getting close, the next 50. And so as you think about this, you're like, how does that connect? Do you remember the statue that had legs of iron and the feet that was iron mixed with clay? Remember how it will have aspects of that iron rule, which we identified as Rome, but it'll be different and destabilized in the feet and toes. 
And we got into that when we talked about the beasts and the horns. All of this leads up, all of that understanding leads up to us seeing this as not necessarily going to happen right at the same moment, but it's going to have aspects, meaning that the ruler who is to come forthcoming for us, the Antichrist, is going to have some kind of a Roman connection. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about this. But I'll say this, it's a Roman connection, whether it's stylistic, empirical, whatever he does, whether it's the way he rules or his actual lineage, I don't know. You could have a fun discussion about it. But here's the point. It's going to have a taste of the Romans. By the way, was Roman rule good? Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Who's the coming ruler that will follow not immediately, but upon his arrival will begin the final set of seven years? Who are we looking for to kick off this crazy seventh, seven-year stretch or 70th week, if you will. Verse 27. I think we could just call him the little horn. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. By the way, that's just really cool, like Tolkien star, like style writing. I really like it. It's like that just sounds cool, but it sounds horrible to live through. It sounds horrible to experience. Just as we saw the connection in Daniel 7 of the ruler coming in the future, having a connection to the Romans, we again see a connection of the coming ruler to the Romans in some way. And the little horn, remember from Daniel 7, 8, is going to make, this is the Antichrist. It's a very clear description of him. He's going to make a covenant, it says, with the many. Now, if you look at the Hebrew text, it is very clearly implied that this is the Hebrews. This is God's people. He's going to make a covenant with them. He's going to make a covenant with God's people. They will embrace him fully. They're going to embrace him. They're going to welcome him in with open arms. You guys... That's scary stuff. That's scary stuff. Especially when you look at John chapter 5, verse 43, when Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. That's a powerful passage. Because it's like his people refuse his salvation, but they're going to welcome what looks like salvation but ends in destruction. John testifies of what he witnessed as Jesus came to his own people in John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So there's a gap between 69 and 70. There's a break here. And it's interesting because this is hard for some people. They'll look at it and be like, it should flow in order chronologically. Why? doesn't do that in literature. doesn't do that in, in the scriptures. It doesn't flow like that. It doesn't work like that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33 shows another significant pause or gap in prophecy regarding the coming Messiah. We see gaps all the time. We don't understand those gaps, but God does give us the amount of time. He does give us the time that will elapse in that period. Gaps or pauses in prophecy may seem strange to us, but they're common in the Bible. And even though we're in a pause, so to speak, in between these sets of seven years, we know very well when the final sequence of seven will begin. Now, this is really interesting. In 1911, not the gun, but the year, 
when there was no state of Israel and wouldn't be until May 14th, 1948, there was no state of Israel in 1911. The following was said by Henry Ironside. The 70th week will begin when the Jewish people are restored in unbelief to their land and city, and among them will be found a faithful remnant owning their sin and seeking Jehovah's face. He said that in 1911, 30-some-odd years, 37, 37 years before they even became a nation. He probably would have been even more doubtful of them becoming a nation in the early 1940s. What's fascinating, you guys, is we walk through time looking at the footsteps in front of us, sometimes not even seeing those so well, and God sees all of it on a timeline. He sees the beginning to the end. He says the, he sees the spark of creation from the moment that he spoke it, and he sees the finality of where it's going. Don't get caught up in getting lost in the now. We focus on the now because that's what he's given us, but don't gain a perspective and a view of the world from what you can see. Trust in what God has said is coming. Trust in his truth as to what comes next. Church, we are here in the gap between 69 and 70. I fully believe with all my heart. We are here in the gap. We await this kickoff of that final seven-year period. There's a remnant of his people right now as Israel exists. Been there. It's cool. As Israel exists currently, there's a remnant of his people that are starting to turn to him. Messianic Jews are gaining number. And they're starting to look to the Lord. They're starting to look for him. The time is here, and I believe that we're on the cusp. I really do. I look at the factors. I look at what's going on in our world. I don't know about you guys, but the ticking of the time bomb seems to be getting louder the more you look at our world today. And we do not lose hope. And we do not grow disheartened because we know where this is going. We know what awaits the ones who stand against our God. And we know that the Antichrist's reign is going to be short. It's going to be short. He's going to break his covenant halfway through. Halfway through that seven-year period. He's going to commit what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 15. We read about that a little bit in the prior chapter in Daniel chapter 8 of something that foreshadowed that, um, that was done by Antiochus Epiphanes. And so the Jews would have an idea of what to expect based on this. And in this moment of desolation at the end of the 70th set of seven years, God will end the Antichrist reign, and he will bring the rebellion to an end, put a stop to sin, atone for iniquity, bring an everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. God will finish what he started. And he who has begun a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6 says. Amen? He is going to finish what he started. Don't grow weary in doing good. Galatians 6, 9 says, For in due season we will reap, church, if we do not give up. Keep sowing righteousness. Keep putting the right seed in the ground. Don't get caught up in what you see going on out there. We have every reason to be as hopeful as we have ever been today. In our current situation, Jesus will be king. He will restore. He will redeem and he will reign forever. We're just waiting for the, that spark to move us forward. And that's in God's hands. 
So let's have patience, long-suffering. Some other time we'll get more into that final week and look at that. Maybe when we do a Bible study through Revelation, huh? You guys can, you guys can send in your votes for that. One final thought before we close, church. Here is Daniel's received this vision, which is weighty. It's heavy, probably very confusing for him from the time period he was sitting in, in Babylon, in exile. Gabriel brought the message to Daniel of both the death and victory of Christ in this world. And it was a prophetic vision to Daniel over, at this time, over 500 years. Over 500 years before the Messiah would even be born. Now, over five centuries later, after much struggle and turmoil in a time of duress and difficulty, Gabriel's going to return. Gabriel's going to reappear. And he's going to show up in a town called Nazareth. And he's going to appear to a young gal named Mary. And he's going to look at her and say, the hour has come. Time is now. Your Savior's coming. I encourage you guys, join us Thursday. We'll talk about that. We'll pick up there. Let's pray. Lord, as was said so well, born in another man's stable, cradled in another man's manger, with nowhere to lay your head during your life on earth and buried in another man's tomb after dying on a cursed cross. You rose in victory and you will return to us in power and glory forevermore. Lift up the hearts and the spirit of your church to both be here and focused on what you've called us to, but to be looking to the sky because our redemption is near. Our time is short. We don't know if you're returning at the end of this year or next year, but Lord, we stand on the cusp of this story finally being drawn to a close. And Lord, we thank you that eternity with you awaits thank you, Jesus, you accomplished what you came to do. And I thank you, Lord, that this week we get to celebrate how that story began. Lord, that you came and that you were born into such a humble state. We thank you, Jesus, for this time. Let's just take a moment, church. Let's keep our heads bowed. Just take a moment to thank the Lord for giving us this life, for giving us what he has, for doing all that he has done, for showing us what's coming and for being willing to sacrifice himself. He fulfilled every part of this story, every bit of the prophecy Christ fulfilled. That means the next part will be fulfilled as well because he is faithful and will continue to be faithful to us.